0: Alright, like I said, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to read to you verses 11 through 22. Actually, it's been a while since we were together. Last time we were together, we were wrestling over whether Jesus was uh, sorry Melchizedek was just a man or whether he was Jesus himself. And the, the conclusion is, I think it might have been Jesus. Some people think it might be a man that we really don't know. The real issue is what? The fact that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek is proof that he is able to be the priest for us because he's not from the line of Levi. Well, the Hebrew writer is going to be dealing with that a lot more tonight as well. So let's read verses 11 through 22. The Hebrew writer goes on to say, "...if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law it was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron?" For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant Now if time permits we're going to go a little bit further tonight in this section and hopefully get to the end of chapter seven but for this make sure that we get this section in we're just going to stop for here for right now now' kind of kind of set us back up we've been away for a little bit as we break down this section it'll help us to remember that the author of Hebrews is still making his proof of Jesus' superiority to their Jewish roots by bringing more meat, if you will out of Psalm 110 verses 1 through4 So put a bookmark here. Go with me back to Psalm 110. I'm going to reread to you verses 1 through 4. And keep in mind, this is the passage that the Hebrew writer is exegeting right now. He's breaking it down. And so let's take a look again at Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. Now David wrote this. The Spirit of God through David wrote this. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn, and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If you were to take time later on and read this whole psalm, it's just a short one of seven verses, you'll see it is a very clear uh, messianic psalm. It's a very clear psalm that talks about the second coming of Jesus when He sets up His kingdom on the earth and all that. But think, when Jesus came to the earth and He, and he lived without sin and He accomplished salvation for us by His death on the cross and His resurrection, what does the Bible say that He did when He He finished His work here on the earth. He went back to the Father and did what? And He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father now until when? Until his time, it's time to come get us. But also, he's see here, until he makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet and again at that time, when he comes back to the earth, he will be setting up his literal earthly kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Now, until then, he's finishing this time we know of as the church age, the age of grace, the time of the Gentiles uh, and when that time period comes to an end, the Jews who have received a hardening and part until, until that time is completed, God will finish his work with the Jews. We've done the study when we did Revelation. We saw how Daniel prophesied, or God spoke through Daniel, that there was going to be 77s, or a total of 490 years for the nation of Israel from the decree to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem until it was finished and so on. And all of that has been literally fulfilled as we saw, except one last seven. And that was when the anointed one came and was cut off. And we did the math and we saw how Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the day at the end of that 483 years, at literally happened to the day, and then there's this time period, and as some people have said, and it's wonderfully put, God put the nation of Israel on hold. He's now accomplishing his work in the church. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and 11 that he's doing this to make the Israelites jealous. Uh, We have been grafted in as a wild vine, and then he's then going to finish his purpose with the nation of Israel. There's one seven-year period left, and it's getting very, very, very close. Folks, I I don't have the time tonight because of our need to study here in Hebrews, but part of me wants to to just go, let's just talk about what's happening in the world and in the Middle East today. I, I, I could spend hours tonight talking to you about what is happening and how the pieces of the puzzle are just coming into place. And what's happening right now in the world, what's happening in, in Bahrain and in Yemen and in Libya and in Egypt and all that. They line up so much with end times prophecy. Folks, all I'm to say to you is read your Bible when it comes to the prophecies in Isaiah and Zechariah and, and Malachi and other places. Read what the Bible says. What's that? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And get ready and be watching what's going on. We are not to predict, but we are to be watching and ready so that we're, we're, we know what's happening and we're not caught by surprise. Again, there are too many people out there that try to make it all fit together and they, can, they want to write a book and sell millions on how I can prove to you what's going to happen. We don't know how it's all going to play out, but we do know this much. All of the world is going to turn against Israel. And it's happening in our day. And folks, it is, it's is—it's just getting quick. So with that in mind, uh, who knows? You all notice the gas prices are starting to go through the roof. But you do realize what's going to happen in the Middle East is going to affect the United States. And we're going to find out who's for real and who's not for real when trouble and persecution really comes to those in America who claim to be Christians. Because when trouble comes, those who are the rocky soil are going to fall away. Those who are for real are going to stick. Be ready, but be encouraged by the fact that the Bible says this was going to happen and that the Lord is with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. It may get bumpy. It may get tough. He may come get us tonight, and that's cool with me too. But I, personally, I'm excited. We're living in an amazing time. And I just want you to not be asleep while this is all going on. Because you know the Bible says that in the time of Jesus' return, it will be as in the days of Noah, people are going on business as usual, giving in marriage and so on, and everybody acting like nothing's different. Folks, a lot is different. Don't miss it, all right? That's your little commercial for what's going on. But what I want to do real quick is I want to just kind of show you how awesome it is. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, maybe because we've been over such a stretched period of time with having to take breaks. But the Hebrew writer is spending a long time exegeting Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4, and especially verse 4. Has anybody noticed most of what we've been looking at now for the last three or four chapters is dealing with a verse in Psalm 110? Did anybody catch this? We've been in, in the study of Hebrews now since chapter 5, of the fact that the Hebrew writer's been dealing with one verse in Psalm 110. And that's one of the things I've come to realize over the years. If we're willing to study the Bible, and, and hopefully you're in a church where the preachers will, will take the Bible and, and, and deal with what the Bible says and pull out the meat of the Word and teach and preach the Word because the Hebrew writer is doing that. And I want to just show you something else from this passage that the Hebrew writer is not bringing out just for the purposes of what he's trying to accomplish. I want to show you that Jesus preached from this exact same verse. This is just a little, little side thing. This is extra. No charge. But go to Matthew Matthew 22. This one little verse that many of us probably had never read until we went to Hebrews, uh, in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, Jesus even preached from this passage. Actually, not this verse per se, but verse 1 and following. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 22 as he's teaching. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. It says, When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Meaning the Messiah. Whose son is he? They said, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one said a word in reply, and from that day no one dared to ask Him any more questions. Now it's interesting, when I first saw this years and years ago, I thought, is Jesus saying that the Messiah wouldn't be the son of David? And then I came to realize that's not what He's doing. He knew full well that He would be of the lineage of David, through Mary and Joseph, born in the lineage of David. But at the same time, He's more than just a man, is what He's pointing out here. He's saying, you guys are looking for a Messiah that's in the lineage of David. It's the son of David. He's going to come from David's family tree. And you know what? That's true. But he's more than that. Why does David call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. Why is David calling his son Lord? Of course, they didn't know the answer because they, had a heart. They, they didn't grasp at this point that the Messiah was not only going to be man, but also be God. And that really threw them a curveball and they decided, you know what, we're not going to ask this guy any more questions. But again, do you see? Here Jesus even preaches from a, a verse in the Psalms. Folks, I'm telling you this to show you there is so much here in this book. If you have the Spirit of God within you, He will begin to open your eyes. Not every day. Sometimes He's going to make you wrestle with it for a couple of days for His reasons. But if you're willing to study it and ask Him, He'll begin to show you things. I want to challenge you to meditate on the Word of God and just let Him begin to speak to you. As I shared with those of you that were at the preaching I was at last week, I'm still meditating on a simple section of a verse in uh, John chapter 14 where Jesus said, If it were not so, I would have told you. Man, there's so much there. And I've been meditating on that for a while. Met with a man today at the 8 o'clock this morning for a breakfast meeting, and we sat and we wrestled on what did Jesus mean when he said, If it were not so, I would have told you. How much is there? And again, we don't have time to get into that one. But what I want you to see is, is the Hebrew writer is pulling a lot out of one little section in Psalms. There's a lot here. All right? Now. He now goes on to point out that if the Levitical system were sufficient... We're back in Hebrews now. If if the Levitical system were sufficient to make us right before God, why was there a need to declare another priest in the order of Melchizedek? All right, let me say that again. If the Levitical system, you know, the Levites and, and the sacrifices of the Old Testament... If that was sufficient to make us right before God, why was there a need to declare another priest in the order of Melchizedek? Because you do know that this declaration, God's declaration of the son of David, who is also going to be Lord, who is going to be priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that came at the time of David. David wrote that. God's prophecy, if you will, or his prediction in this sense, that the Messiah would also be in the order of Melchizedek. This came after priesthood. So it's replacing the need for the Levitical priesthood. Now, interestingly enough, and and we may touch on this later if we have time, as you hopefully remember from our earlier study, Melchizedek even preceded the Levitical priesthood. Because you remember when Melchizedek was on the earth, whether it was a man or whether it was Jesus himself, you know, before he took on flesh, we don't know. But when Melchizedek was on the earth back in the time of Abraham, Abraham offered sacrifices to him. And who did the Bible say was inside of Abraham when he was doing that? Aaron. I mean, not Aaron. Levi. You know, know, kind of a thing. And so, in a sense, the one who was going to be the head of the priests was offering sacrifices to this other priest. So in a sense, Melchizedek preceded the Levitical system. But the oath that Jesus was going to come in the order of Melchizedek as a priest came after the Levitical system. And the Hebrew writer is saying, that's not by accident, and that's to show us something. The Levitical system never was made to make man right before God. It was never God's intention that the Levitical system would make men right before God. He, and we'll get to in a second what his purposes were. But he wants them to understand, if you think the Levitical system is going to make you right before God, it was never God's intention. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made a new order of priesthood to replace it. So what I want to do now is, is this. Um, the Hebrew writer also points out that since the law gave us the Levitical system, and since the priest in the order of Melchizedek replaces the Levitical priest, there must also, therefore, need to be a change for the, in the law. Alright? You have a question. Go right ahead. What, what was the Levitical system designed we're going to get to that. We're going to get right to that. Now, you're already ahead of me. You know That's awesome. We're going to get to what the purpose of the Levitical system was. But understand, he's now saying that actually, it, since the law gave us the Levitical system, and the Levitical system needs to be replaced, that means you also have to replace what? Law. The law. Let's take a look at it. Paul actually talks about that too. Go to, go to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 15 through 25. Paul talks about it from a different angle, but he brings this out as well. Galatians 3, verses 15 through 25. He says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular. The Scripture does not say, and to seeds, Meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, Paul says, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Remember, we've done this study earlier in our study, that God had said in Genesis fifteen six, because of Abraham's faith, He credited it to him as righteousness. And all along, God has been planning and it has been His intention to give righteousness and everlasting life to those who have faith in Him. Of course, the provision is the need to cover our sins is going to happen through Jesus Christ. But all along, the promise had been to him and his seed, meaning one person, which is Jesus. Now the law comes 430 years later, and Paul says it doesn't set aside the promise already made. The covenant already made. Alright? Now, look at verse 19 then. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? Edith's question. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, uh, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Alright, now let's let's break this down. I see some of you going nodding. Some of you got the wrinkled foreheads like, okay, what in the world did he just say? Alright, let's let's back it up. God made a promise to Abraham that righteousness would come by what? Faith in the seed. Faith in the one. Alright, that's the key. Now, 430 years later, God gave the law. What was the purpose of the law according to verse 19? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. In other words, what are you saying? Go ahead. It's like a stepping stone to the introduction of who Jesus is and our need for Him. We're not going to turn there for the second time, but if you were to look at Romans chapter 5 verse 20, it says the law was added so that the trespass would increase. That's an interesting thing for us. I've asked a lot of churches as I travel around this country and speak to them, I'll say, does God want lost people to sin less or sin more? And they go, oh, less. And I say, no, I can show you the Bible says that God wants lost people to sin more. Why? Because when they sin more, they realize they're sinners. Right now they're already sinners. They're already separate from God because of their sin. But they think they're okay because they only do a couple. But the law was added to show us you're worse than you think you are. And as Paul also said in other places, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said don't covet, and now I want to covet. The law not only shows you you can't do it, it also fires up the flesh in us to not want to obey the law. You know what it's like. You You don't want someone telling you you can't do it. Now all of a sudden I want to do it, and, and for me when I play competitive sports, especially with my buddies, you know, if we're playing with somebody that doesn't know me, and uh, and my, I'm with my buddies, and they'll say, Jim, I don't, I bet you can't hit it over that ditch. My, my friends will say, Don't do that to him, because he's going to do it now. Because now once you say I can't, everything in me says, Oh yeah, but it's the same way in a bad way. When the law comes, now I want to break the law. But so one of the reasons was it was to what? Because of transgression, it was to hopefully. Bring us to Christ. And that's going to be there in time, but it's going to... It held us prisoner, it said, in verse 23. Held prisoner by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Folks, if you've got somebody that that thinks they don't need Jesus to get to heaven, and that they think they can get to heaven by being good, just tell them to do this. Okay? If you can get to heaven by being good, um, see if you can keep the Ten Commandments for a week. Oh, by the way... When Jesus said, don't commit adultery, He also clarified that. If you look lustfully on a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So don't think that if I didn't touch anybody, I'm clean. Go a week without looking lustfully at a woman. Good luck with that. Oh, by the way, when it says don't murder, Jesus clarified that. and He says, if you get angry with your brother, it's like murder. Have no other gods before me. Don't covet. Tell them just just go for a week. How would they do? They're going to fall flat on their face. It's impossible. The law, if they come back and say, you know what, I'm more of a sinner than I thought I was, the law has done its job. The law has done its job. So the purpose of the law, Paul says, is to show us our need of a Savior. Let me clarify that some more with something else Paul said in Romans chapter 3. That's why personally I always tell you, if you're out there talking to someone about Jesus, don't be in a hurry to tell them the good news. I'm serious about this. We're, we've been told, tell them the good news. Most of the people in the world today that don't know who Jesus is, they don't understand the bad news. I got good news for you. Jesus died for your sins. They don't think they're a sinner. Go let them deal with whether or not they understand sin first, and then when they understand sin, buddy, they are ready for good news. Are they not? Don't be in a hurry to tell them the good news till they understand the bad news. Jesus was that way. In Romans chapter three, look at verses nineteen and twenty. Paul says, and now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. All right? So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The promise came 430 years before the law. The law has always been a temporary thing to help us understand our need of the promise. But we've got so many people in the world today that even though they're not Jewish, they think they're going to be okay with God by a law of some sort. Good versus bad, and whether or not they kept the law. And guess what? That has never been how God has determined how we get into heaven, isn't it? And sad how Satan has been real good at lying to the whole world. He knows people can't get to heaven by being good, but he tells them, just be a good person. Just be a good person. We even say that about lost people in our churches, don't we? I'm just going to talk to you, parents that are struggling with who have children who might not know the Lord. We're afraid to say our child's lost. Well, Susie's a good girl. You know, Johnny's a good boy. They're just a little misguided. Folks, the sooner they understand they're lost, the better. Maybe it might help you to understand their loss, they might pr- change your prayer. Lord, may they come to realize where they really stand with you, because I don't know, and only you know. And if they're lost, may they understand that, and if they're yours, thank goodness you're going to finish what you started. But if your child is away from the Lord, we can't just say, well, they're just misguided. There's a chance they may need to come to themselves and realize they're separated from God because of their sin. All right. Um, actually, the Hebrew writer talks about it. Go back to Hebrews 7. Look at verses 18 and 19. In Romans chapter se- I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. The former regulation is set aside, talking about the Levitical system and the law, because it was weak and what? Unprofitable. Unprofitable. Useless. What's, what's it talking about? Now, we know that it's not useless in the sense that it accomplished nothing. Its purpose was to show us our need of a Savior, to show us that we're not capable of being righteous in the eyes of God. But in the sense of making us right before God, it can't. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. All right? So as we see, not only has Jesus' priesthood in the order of Melchizedek superseded the law-born Levitical priesthood, the Melchizedek type of priesthood also preceded it. So in effect, the law was always a temporary thing. It's always been a temporary thing. To show us our sin, this is the answer to your question, what's its purpose? To show us our sin, to show us our inability to be righteous on our own, and to lead us to Christ. When someone finally comes to that place where they say, "Oh, dip, I'm in trouble," now they're ready for Jesus Christ. Yes, delete this. <laughs> now I understand what you're saying. I know where you're going, and this is where many Christians wrestle, because as we deal with this, well, what's the purpose of the law? You know? Well, I can tell you this much. The law is not bad. Paul, and we don't have time to go back into that whole section, Paul then has to defend and say, look, I'm not saying the law is bad or unholy or anything. Please understand that. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Yet, at the same time, for those of us who are Christians, we're not under the law. In the fact fact that God is judging us by whether we do good or bad anymore does he care about our behavior yes as our father will he be shaping and molding us into his image and sometimes will that be painful yes but honestly he's not judging us on whether or not we keep the law anymore we have had the full requirements of the law met by Jesus we have been given his righteousness our sin was heaped on him at the cross so from now on we are no longer judged by whether we keep the law but the law is not done because if Jesus lives within us, the one who fulfilled the law and continues to fulfill the law wants to fulfill the law in our daily righteousness, if you will. you understand what I'm saying? Part of you wants to say, in a sense, it's deleted. And, and I would say partially yes. But not to the point that we can just say, I can do whatever I want now. I can break the law and it really makes no difference. It's like you said the very first class. You yeah, said, if you love me, you will... You obey my commands. Yep. The focus is not on obeying the commandments to prove our love. The focus is on loving Him, and you will obey the commandments. Paul said in Galatians 5.16, So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So I'm sorry, and I'll get right to you, Bill. What I want to say to you is this. Before you came to know Christ, and actually in my Sunday school class at our church at First Merit Island Sunday, where I actually got to go to Sunday school this week, uh, we actually talked about this. Before we came to know Christ, the focus was the law, and it was good. How are you doing? You need to, you're a sinner. You're separated from God. But now after salvation, my focus should not be the law. My focus should be what? Jesus. Jesus. He will take care of the law obedience after that. Too many Christians are still looking at the law the same way they did before they were saved. How am I doing? Am I doing good? Did I obey? Did I keep it? Your focus should not be the law anymore, folks. That was used to bring you to Jesus. Now that you've been born again, the rules have changed for you. Your focus should now be loving Jesus Christ, and He'll take care of the rest of it. Bill, go right ahead. In the New King James, that verse 18 is uh, for on one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitable. Yep. And uh, John MacArthur says the, uh, the law was weak in that it could not save, or this is the best part, or bring about inward change in a person. And you know that must be Jesus' is teaching in Nicodemus when he said, "You can't, you must be born again." Yeah, he was getting to that same. He's dealing with that same issue of the law. Of the law, Nicodemus who knew the law, he was telling you it doesn't change you internally. That's right. That's what he meant by the, said to be born again, you know, that, uh, and he didn't understand that, but that must have been what he was about, the law itself. Exactly. So, he, kept the problem, but he, he did. Well it was Pharisee. He probably did better than most. For those that couldn't hear Bill in the back, he was talking about how as, as in his Bible with the John MacArthur notes talks about how the law not only can't make us righteous, it also can't bring an in inward change. Those of you that have had kids and have had to lay the law down, you might have gotten them to toe the line, but did their heart change? Probably not. Most likely not. The law doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. And that's the real focus. So now, as a Christian, don't focus on whether or not you're keeping the law. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and He'll take care of all the other stuff. He'll change your heart. Go right ahead. You, Susan. What happens to the law in the last seven years? That's a very good question. Now, because of the fact that I don't have time to fully answer that, or else we won't keep my promise of getting to this far, I'll give you the short version. The nation of Israel, though, is going to, during the tribulation period, go back to their sacrifices. When do they come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah? It's at the end it's the very, very end of the tribulation period. They're going to go back to the Levitical system. Remember, the Antichrist is going to set up his, his, his abomination that causes desolation in the wing of the temple. So they're going to have rebuilt the temple at some point, whether it's before that last seven or during it or whatever. So during that seven-year period, they're going to be going back to believing in God in some sense and offering sacrifices, but they don't believe in Jesus till the very, very end of that seven-year period. Now, interestingly enough, and this is I'm probably going down a road that we don't have time to even chase, The Bible actually says in the millennium there will be sacrifices in the millennium. But I believe that the sacrifices in the millennium are going to be like our Lord's Supper. Hopefully you don't think that when you take the Lord's Supper it gives you righteousness. Unfortunately there are some churches that teach that and it's not a biblical teaching. You've already been given righteousness through Jesus Christ. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, what are you doing? You're remembering the Lord's death. It's a symbolism. I believe that the sacrifices during the millennial kingdom, which there are going to be, are not to take away sin, but to remind them. It's their way of doing it. As we take the Lord's Supper to remember, they're going to be offering sacrifices to remember what Jesus has done for them. Again, that's the short version. Did you want to say something, Neil? Go ahead. Basically, the law was made so that no one could abide by it. One person could abide by it, Jesus Christ. Right. You got it. You got it. That's it. Now, you have to understand, this is important if we remember who the author of Hebrews is writing to. Does anybody remember who the author of Hebrews is writing to? He's writing to Hebrews. Now, this is important. I, I don't, don't miss this. Very good. Duke. Somebody must have woke him up. That's awesome. He got it. He got one. Look closely. See, the Hebrew writer is not writing to Gentile Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. The Gentile Christians would have never thought that the Levitical system had any merit. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are thinking about leaving Christianity because of their struggles and going back to Judaism. The Hebrew writer is saying, hello, McFly, Um, that wasn't any good in the first place. And why did God need to replace it if it was any good? And so in a sense, he's, he's saying, well, even if they thought that a new and better priest were coming, they still would have considered him to be in the order of the Levites. The Hebrew writer has now shown them that what we have, have in Jesus, since he's in the order of Melchizedek, has always been and will always be greater than the sacrificial system given us by the law. In other words, to go back would be to go back to what, was, or what has always been temporary and inferior. This is why understanding who he's writing to makes even more sense. He's not writing to people like you and me who grew up as Gentiles. Nobody here is thinking about going back to the law. Well, maybe not in that sense. I think a lot of us do have a tendency to gravitate back toward, have I been good or have I been bad? Is God happy with me? Is God not happy with me? Let's be honest. Don't we all do that? Don't we all have a tendency to kind of judge whether or not God sees us as good people or bad people by whether or not we read our Bibles or whether or not we shared our faith or whether or not we didn't yell at our wives or whatever or tell bad jokes about them or whatever, you know, when they get mad and that stuff. But um, don't fall back into that pattern anyway because that never made anybody righteous before God. It won't make you righteous before God. You're already righteous before God through Jesus Christ. But to the people He's writing to, This would have hit home to help them understand it never was. You might have thought it was sufficient. It never was. And it needed to be replaced. All right? Now, the next bit of evidence that the author of Hebrews uses to prove Jesus' superiority uh, to the temporary Levitical priesthood is the fact that Jesus can no longer die. Uh, Look at what he says. Uh, Go to verse uh, 15. Right, and what we have, verse, chapter 7, verse 15, and what we have said is even more clear, if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest, what? Forever. Forever in the order of Melchizedek. That goes back to Psalm 110, verse 4. He's not a priest because of his ancestry. Jesus is not, but because of his indestructible life. By the way, there are people, that you might not even known this, but there are those who, because of their understanding of the Levitical priesthood, have tried to trace Jesus' lineage through the Levites as well. They're wacky. It's, not, it's not, not even close. Jesus has never come from the Levitical line. He's always been prophesied to be from the tribe of, of, of Judah, uh, the line of Jesse and David and so on. And we have the lineages in, in Matthew and, 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 and Luke to show that he is of the tribe of, of Judah and of David's line. But there are those who tried because they had to, you know, we think we have to defend God. Wait a minute, he's serving his priest maybe he has his come through the Levitical. And they tried to come up with some wacky way to say that he came through the Levitical priesthood too. Um, and I say to those people, read your Bibles. It's in the book of Hebrews. He didn't have to be from the Levitical priesthood because he's from actually one better than Levitical priesthood and has always been in the order of Melchizedek. All right? Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 and 25, or through 25. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Now, we're going to talk about that at the very end of our time here tonight in just a little bit. But for right now... Understand that the Hebrew writer is saying, not only is Jesus superior in these other ways, he's also superior in the fact that he has a life that is indestructible and he continues to live on. And you've got a priest that is going to live forever and be your intercessor. That's pretty good. Have you ever had a relationship with somebody who was in power and could say a good word for you, and then they retired and the new guy comes in? and you're you 're no longer we 've all had that happen in some way or not, have we not? It was nice to have somebody who was in the know and spoke on your behalf, but once they died or retired, you all of a sudden lost your good standing. This is what he 's talking about. think about Joseph, and then what happens and it says in Genesis, then there came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph or remember Joseph, and all of a sudden the Israelites became slaves, did they not? Praise God our priest is not going to go out of office. Praise God the one who is standing in our behalf, the one who is interceding for us. Praise God he's not going to retire. Praise God he's not going to, you know, die and have us have someone come in and say, I don't know who you are. You know? That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. In verses twenty through twenty two of chapter seven, the author of Hebrews now goes back to his oath argument though, as he did earlier. So I want you to go back with me to chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Alright? In chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, let's go back and take a look again what he was talking about. He said, When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now we did the study already where God made an oath at that time when He promised him that. And he swore by himself. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, what the Hebrew writer says here, if you go back to chapter 7, verses 20 through 22, he says that it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. In other words, when you were in the Levitical priesthood, God had just said the ones who are of Aaron's lineage are going to be the priests. Levi and so on. So if you're born into that, there was no oath. It was you're born into it, you're, you're a priest. But Jesus' priesthood was initiated by God with an oath. They may know when God gave that oath. When? No. When did he give the oath that Jesus was going to be a priest? Forever. In the order of? Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn... Oh, by the way, the Hebrew writer quotes that passage right here in verse 21. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now we know in the order of Melchizedek. God not only said that Jesus was going to be a priest forever, He swore it by an oath. Now we've been to this study. Does God need to say scouts honor? Does God need to swear? No. God cannot lie. So why in the world does God say, I'm going to swear an oath? Well, we just read it here in chapter 6. Through two things. You see what He says here? Alright, verse 17 of chapter 6. God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. In other words, he says, God used two proofs. One, He said it. And two, He confirmed it with an oath. Folks, God's saying, I don't want you to miss this. He's not saying, I lie sometimes, but this one I'm telling the truth. He's saying, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is the only way. You see, because some could say, wait a minute, He had Levitical priesthood, and then He replaced it with Jesus. How do we know that He hasn't replaced it with something else? I mean, there are many ways to God. Jesus could be just one. Haven't we ever heard those words? are we living in a day when people will say, well, I believe that Jesus is one of the ways. But he, God may choose that that Muslim who has faith that he could be okay, and God may choose that the Hindu has faith that he would be okay, because God just really is looking for faith. No, 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 no. God has sworn that it is only through Jesus Christ. And He didn't swear... Because he lies sometimes, and this one we have to pay attention to. He's saying, I don't want you to miss this. It has always been, always, 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 and that's for the part I want to jump into here in the time we have, and I can't wait to get to it. The, proof, the Bible says it has always been about Jesus. Jesus is not a secondary plan. He's not plan B. He has always been the way to be made righteous. Melchizedek, if it was a man or Jesus, we don't know, preceded Abraham. I'm sorry, Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. That was a temporary thing. Jesus has replaced him and has actually preceded him. Look with me real quick. Um, Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Now I'm going to go fast here, so I'm going to ask you to rub in the uh, ointment on your hands and and go quick here with the quick fingers. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. I, John... Your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard the, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, Reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like glowing bronze in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am what? The first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write this. These are the words of Him who is the first and the last. Who died and came to life again. Go to um, Revelation 22 verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And for those of you who don't know, that's the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. I am the A and the Z, is what he's saying. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Go to Isaiah chapter 41. 41. Hopefully you're writing these down and you can go look at these some more later on. Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 4. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who is stirred up from one one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last... I am He. I think this is a picture of Jesus when He comes to set up His kingdom. As He comes and the nations fall before Him. As you know, He's going to come to Basra. He's going to reveal Himself to those Jews who have been spared out of the, out of the tribulation period who are hiding in, in that area of Basra. And He's going to make his, 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 his attack from there to Jerusalem. Ascend the Mount of Olives and the, Mount, and the, tri, the uh, Millennial Kingdom is going to, going to um, begin. But look at what it says. Who's, who's doing this? I, the Lord. With the first of them and with the last, I'm He. One last one Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Listen closely what he said. Before the creation of the world, God planned to make us saved through who? Through Jesus. It's been His plan all along. Jesus is not plan B. And when all things come to fulfillment, who's it going to be all about? It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. So don't let anybody think, well, that's one way God did it, but there are other ways. God has sworn, and He cannot lie. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Now, in the time we have left, I'm going to read verses, go back to chapter 7 of Hebrews. We'll look at verses 26 through 28. Let's finish the chapter. Then I'm going to ask you a couple simple questions, and you're going to like this quiz because it's one of the easiest ones to get right. right. And look at verses 26 through 28. Such a high priest, Jesus, meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. And what I thought about when I kind of looked at this last section was this. These verses have wonderfully summed up everything we've been looking at tonight. Have they not? We could have just read those verses, and that's saying everything we've just dealt with. So I'm going to give you a quiz tonight as we wrap up. Alright, which would you rather? Alright, I'm going to give you a choice tonight. Would you rather a human priest who sins and does possibly his best and then dies? Or, would you rather God Himself to be your priest, a priest who is holy, blameless, pure, and cannot die? Hopefully you choose B, right? Alright, good. Which would you rather? A priest who became priest simply by being born into a priestly family? Or, a priest appointed by God by His oath to be the priest which He chose to bring men to God perfectly and forever? But I thought I just told you that Jesus wasn't plan B. Ah, that was a trick. These <laughs> answer. The choice is simple, is it not? Again, for everybody that's in this room, I know most of y'all, and I'm pretty sure all of y'all know him, but I don't know everybody that well. Let me just make sure. We're getting close, folks, to the point when he's going to gather his bride and the last seven is going to occur. Make sure that your full faith is in Jesus. Not in Jesus and you being a good person. I've talked to too many Christians around this country and I ask them, if you did to die, will you go to heaven? And they answer this, well, yeah, I think so. I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to be real good. I say believe in Jesus and leave being the real good part off. Put your full faith in Jesus Christ. Put the full faith in Jesus Christ. My prayer is that the people that the Hebrew writer was writing to made the right choice. That they didn't go back to what was insufficient. It was just a picture Of what was to come. Let me pray for us again, Father. Thank you again. Thank you for how these hours just go, just like that. And your word is so much fun to look at. And Lord, thank you that you're giving us a glimpse of how much meat there is in just one small little section that many of us probably would have just skimmed over. Lord, may you put within us a desire to take just a small section of your word and meditate on it. Read other parts as well. But Lord, may you just put something in our heart that you want us to chew on. Something you want us to you want to speak to us about. Something you want to show us from this word because it's alive. it's You. You are the Word. You're living in this book. Your Spirit will help us grasp the in, insight from it as You live within us, as we've trusted You as our Savior. Oh, Father, as we get close to the time when You come get us, may none in this room, may none listening to this online ever turn back. And may they be even more securely grounded in faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Your name. Amen.